Hi there, universe, and welcome back to season one of the Sci-Fi Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Brent Aldrich, and joining me, as always, is John Love. Hi, John. Hello. I, uh, I think I've come up with a simpler and much quicker way to introduce this podcast. Uh, I'm willing to hear it, but I think it's a bad idea. Well, have you ever heard of Abreeves? I have. Yeah, that's short for abbreviation. I, yeah, it was much quicker, I must admit. And that's how we're going to do this. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think uh, I, I have an abbreve that we can use. Can I guess what it's going to be? Yeah. I'll give you three guesses. Uh, Sifbkklpka. I don't know why I didn't think of that one. Is that right? Nope. I don't need my other guesses. That's the best one I came up with. All right. Uh, uh, I think I think uh, I'll 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 say it's the SFBCPC. Oh yeah, the SFBCPC. Yeah. Although people aren't going to know what it stands for, so I'll probably still have to explain that it stands for Sci-Fi Book Club Podcast. That's true. So in that sense, it actually makes it longer. Much longer. Right. But it's probably more... Uh, this this will resonate with uh, the, the audience. Yeah. Uh, more hashtagable. Mm-hmm. I've read about that in history class before the hashtag wars. That's right. Oh, Wiped out all yeah. the hashtags. Rest in peace. Yeah. Hashtag rest in peace. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hashtag SFPCBC or whatever the hell. Yeah. P- P- I guess you have to say PCBC because if I say PCBC, it sounds like a, a generic brand. Uh, Reese's Pieces. Right. Yeah. It almost ended uh, PCP also. PCP 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. on store shelves mm-hmm. across the galaxy. Anyway, we'll try it next time. Yeah. You know, you don't, don't force it. I won't. Okay. For those of you who just join us, we're broadcasting from the Galactic Center. It's 900 years in your future, um, and uh, we've, we're on this pod full of science fiction, books, movies, ephemera from your time. So we're floating around here uh, in the Galactic Center on this spaceship, and uh, you know what? I, I walked in here this afternoon... To say that, uh, to, to sit down, review my notes, to work on this podcast. And I noticed that uh, something's strange here, John. I don't know if, if you can tell. You're, you're holographically projected in here. Right. I, I don't have a very limited field of vision with my holographic eyes. So is that right? I, I, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm picking up what you're laying down. Well, it's, um, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, I have this desk. Is it uh, the correct number of people, correct number of legs things should have? You've talked about that a lot, I have to say. Uh, I would say the appropriate amount. Well, twice? Exactly. <laughs> once in the first half, once in the second. Well, enough in the first half and enough in the second half. Okay. Right. So, uh, typically, my my desk here where I have this recording device and I keep my notes, and I like to read. Uh, I also like to drink a lot of coffee, and the mugs just pile up. I don't clean them. I, I, I leave my trash everywhere. I um, just uh, uh, spill sometimes, and I don't clean that up. Um, but I came in here this afternoon, 
and things looked to be in order. Right. I Yeah, I can see, actually, and this is unsettling, I can see more of your legs than normal because there's less clutter. Right. And it's deeply unsettling. How many can you see? Too many. That's all. I'm not going to give you the, the pleasure of me even even acknowledging how many you have. Well, I tried. It's far too many. Uh, okay. Uh, it's it's a it's a strange situation that uh, that I'm under. I think the only the only thing that could explain this is ghosts. Ghosts. You got it. Mm-hmm. Not just any ghosts. Clean ghosts. That's true. Well, mo- yeah. Most of the ghosts I've seen are clean. Casper friendly. Okay. Cleans your room for you. Yep. That w- that's what makes them friendly. Exactly. You have friends come over to your house when you're younger, and they just make a mess, and they leave their shit everywhere, like their actual shit. They don't even go to the bathroom. They poop on the floor. Bad friends. Yeah. They'd be, they'd be unfriendly ghosts mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. I would imagine. I would think so. But Casper, right. friendly, cleans your, cleans your room before he leaves. Even stuff that's not his fault. Do you guys hang out? Me and Casper? Yeah. Well, we're both... Uh, in ethereal form often, yeah. so we have that in common. That's what I thought. Uh, he, you know, the the negative part about his form is that he's sort of wispy and, and ends in this weird, like, tail thing as yeah. opposed to, you know, legs that I could pick apart. Sure. Uh, so that, you know... Right. We'll hang out as long as we, we, we both put um, our legs underneath the table, or at least he does. Mm-hmm. So I'll sit face 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 to face with him at a at a table. I, I think it's also strange that he's so friendly since he's tormented by the souls of the damned, being a ghost and all. Right. Well, you know, there's got to be some friendly ones. Okay. So maybe maybe he's special, and he just nothing gets to him. Mm-hmm. That uh, guy. That Casper. <laughs> I'll, I'll pour one out. Pour one out for that Casper. <laughs> Casper, wherever you are. That's right. Let's hang out on Friday. Come over to my place. So, with that, on this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about the science fiction book, The Sirens of Titan, by Earth author Kurt Vonnegut, written in your year, 1959. Now, uh, The Sirens of Titan, go. Um, They are three beauties on the planet Titan. Uh, it's a right? moon of a planet, and well, who's counting? Right? Okay, sure. Uh, well, you usually. <laughs> Good point. Uh, it is a moon of a planet. I stand corrected, but I mean that that whole uh, sector of the galaxy gets yeah. wiped out. Oh, spoilers! Oh, oh boy! Yeah. Well, and the hashtag wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hashtag wars. Um, there's a. Uh, let's see. Where do I want to get into this? Let's the just beginning. say. Audiobook. Go. Audiobook. Uh, chapter one, page one. Between Timon and Timbuktu, that's in 18 point bold font. Uh, then there's a line. Next section. In quotes, I guess somebody up there likes me. That is a serif font, 12 point, end parentheses, end quotations, I mean. Uh, there's a, a dash, Malachi consonant, that's all bolded. 
Do caps? they give those sort of notes? Yeah, all caps. Do they yeah. do they give uh, those sort of notes in audiobooks? I think it's helpful. I think so too. It really, you know, it doesn't really speed up the process, but it gives you all the necessary information. Yeah. You know, it puts me right there in that world. Exactly, right the there book. on the page, <laughs> right there on that. On the mauled trees become paper. Uh, bold. Giant E. It's E is way bigger. Than, okay, yeah, that's we're started. That's a good section. We started. What what part of that begun. was your favorite part? Who I gotta say, I like the second set of quotation marks. I like that big E. That big E was <laughs> just so was pretty good. Just so big. It was larger than most of the other characters on the, on the page. Uh, well, this is the kind of amazing content you came here to find uh-huh. on the Sci-Fi Book Club podcast, aka hashtag SF BCPC. You got it. They all rhyme. It's tough to remember them all. That's so catchy. I would say just rolls off the tongue. Exactly. Well, let's. I'll. I'll. Uh, I'll, I'll start uh, to try to describe some very loose. Well, here's what I want to say. I'll describe some very loose um, structure of this book, but I also want to step aside from that and say the best part of this book is actually the complexity and how the narratives all like. There's a bunch of narratives happening, and then by the end, they all meet and run into each other. So, indeed, I so, mean, I've read I've read my fair share of, of these books we have lying around here, yeah. uh, and <clears throat> I've got to say, as far as a complex book goes, mm-hmm. which I think this definitely is one, as far as where the narratives align, where they overlap, cross, etc., it's extremely readable, mm-hmm. and it's very simple in, in, in some of the points that it reveals not not in a negative way at all it's yeah. uh you know you, you get to a, a head in one of the chapters and all these realizations come at you suddenly and it's i don't know it, it's uh it's really easy it's an easy book to, to yeah. read and get into and to have those uh revelations S- simple isn't easy as far as mm-hmm. writing goes as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. yeah no that's absolutely right i think that this book um as you say, it was very easy to read, even though the narrative's really complex. So that once I started reading it, I I really didn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. I had glue on my fingers. Right. I was going to say, uh, your, your copy looks pretty sticky over there, yeah, from what I can see. I spilled on it. Yeah. With all the clutter now removed from the space, that I can definitely see the muck on top of that book. Yeah. It's really... Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the no. thing in this room. I wish those I, I wish those clean ghosts would deal with this. You know what I'm saying? Heard that, Casper, yeah. get after it. <laughs> so um, we we start meeting a couple characters early on. There's this Malachi Constant who you read a quote of. That's from. true. I honestly don't even remember the quote because I got too caught up. <laughs> With the way that it was, yeah. uh, it was all aligned. I got caught up in the fonts and all that. That's right. But I, yes, I did read a quote from him. There's this, um, I think that the first way that she's introduced is as Mrs. Rumford. I don't know if they even give her name. Beatrice Rumford. And, uh, and then we, we meet very quickly um, her husband. Is that who we meet next? It probably is. I'm sure... We meet a crowd. Oh, there's the crowd. Yeah, right after that uh, sort of 
it basically looks like an ellipsis, but it's not within the main text. It sort of separates two paragraphs. Uh, right after the first one of those, it says, there was a crowd. <laughs> yeah. There's actually, I, I want to talk about a, th- a thing with the crowd later on. Uh, Winston Niles Rumford and his dog, Kazak, uh, we meet pretty quickly, materializing for some minutes. They, they uh, travel through space-time, through this chronosynclastic infundibulum, um, in which those two guys exist as, like, wave forms, essentially, mm-hmm. and only materialize in certain places as their waveforms intercept it on some regular schedule. Mm-hmm. Those, those guys... Well, here's one of the complications of this narrative that took almost the whole book to unfold for me. Um, I, I thought that it was actually, throughout the course of the book, um, even some of the characters have like name changes that almost change their identity. Actually figuring out like who's the good guy in this story right. um, was very difficult. So I remember reading this very first uh, chapter where Winston, Niles Rumford, and his dog materialize. And at that point, he's just this like, guy who appeared from outer space which sounds awesome definitely um and um and malachi constant is this like rich playboy and so at that point they go and sit in um rumford's this like beautiful new england like hangout library club and i'm reading that i'm thinking like oh yeah that sounds awesome i like this guy this rumford you know he seems like a good good dude um, and over the course of the book, of course, he maybe changes roles substantially, as does Constant, um, right. as do many characters. Yeah, yeah. this book, as far as all the characterization goes, every character, every major character is, is pretty uh, morally complex, especially. Uh-huh. And we've talked about said the word complex quite a few times already, but also sort of morally ambiguous at different times. Yeah. And it, it doesn't really reveal itself until... Again, sort of towards the end, because I mean, the character who stays with us um, throughout the book is this Malachi Constant, and he's the way he's portrayed right at the beginning is yeah, kind of as a pretty unlikable guy, mm-hmm. the richest person in the United States of America, which I'm led to believe is uh, some important geopolitical mm-hmm. distinction on this planet mm-hmm. Earth. Harrison Ford was their president. Oh, remember? that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I remember my Earth history class. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so we can sort of tell that he's going to be a character that sticks around throughout the rest of the book on, on some level, and that comes true. But at the very beginning, he's introduced as this very, very unlikable character who has everything go his way um, yeah. strictly by being lucky. So, uh, so yeah, and, and then... Um, you know, this wave formed uh, Winston Niles Rumford seems like he has it all together. He can sort of predict future events to some degree. Yes. And, and seems pretty, uh, I guess, pleased with himself and also at, at ease with the world. Uh, he knows essentially what's going to happen, doesn't, doesn't judge the things that do uh, occur. And, and then by all, you know, by all judgment seems, seems to be pretty, pretty, okay with the way things are turning out and mm-hmm. that that eventually changes uh to some yeah. degree but you know it, it's not there's no foreboding regarding how that happens it just sort of 
um, there's an interesting realization towards the end of the book, but we might be getting ahead of ourselves. All right, all right. And with that, I would like to instigate the listener challenge. Uh, that was great. Mm. I think like, there was an extra, extra acoustics with my uh, conch horn. Yeah, conch shell. I mean, yeah, it's, right. a, it's also a horn. Yeah, that, that, oh, that's it what you functions as a horn. That's what you're wearing on that strap around your back all the time. Yeah, I always wondered what that was. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I could have told you. She just asked. A conch shell. Yeah, that's pretty neat. I call it a conch horn as I've just <laughs> <course>. revealed. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. anyways, listener challenge. Let's so listener challenge. Um, I've I've got to ask. So the very first chapter is basically from the perspective. Well, the very first part of the first chapter is from the perspective of this sort of unnamed narrator, mm-hmm. and he talks about the way that um, Earth society ended up going before they really got into into space out to where we are now in the galactic center but they talk about their sort of moral explorations uh that take place after they sort of searched out the rest of the galaxy Mm -hmm. kept going outward and outward and outward and uh so the your listener challenge uh listeners is the bounties of space of infinite outwardness were how many how many bounties of space were there uh, that, that you that you can seek out in out in space, you know, out outward away from yourselves, not looking inward, um, looking outward. Those are uh, you know, I, w- I would say they're opposites. Oh, and so in, inward and outward. I would say those are opposites. And like, so uh, innies and outies. That's another abreve. Yeah, abreve. I don't have a belly button. I'm a material oh, form. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> so the bounties of space. How many are there? I'll give you one hint. Let's have it. The first of them, empty heroics. Ooh. The second one, low comedy. And the third one, and there's no more, pointless death. So if, if you listeners can contend there are more or less mm. than these, these named bounties of space, call us and we'll give you a prize. Yeah. Some kind. We've got. All, I've got this whole stack of prizes just waiting to be given away. Yeah, but see. no one has been able to refute your listener challenges. I see Jolly Rancher 2.0s. <laughs> I see Matthew McConaughey 3.0 bobblehead dolls. Uh huh. And fantastic. Uh, uh, sh- fantastic prizes. Chinese Meccano uh, multi finger traps. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your lamb earth single finger traps just aren't cutting anymore. No way. We figured them out. <laughs> <laughs> Too easy. That's all I have to say. So yeah, uh, that's your listener challenge. That's, that's that's it. Thank you, John. Yep. No problem. Inward, inward, and outward. Yeah. Onward and upward. Forward and hopefully continue to go forward. Going backward won't do. Under and over. More prepositional phrases for prepositions. There you go. Yes. So one of, uh, in, in addition to just this like really complex narrative, the writing in this book is also so good. Um, just how he actually writes, how Vonnegut actually writes. In English, yeah. using sentences. Yeah. I mean, I've described some of the punctuation he uses. Mm-hmm. Just on that level, right. it's interesting. There was a dash. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the, some of, you know, within the first two dozen words mm-hmm. there's I would say five different types of punctuation maybe 
It's a lot. Yeah. It's quite a few. Now, and, and actually, it does remind me, um, if I may refer back to the listener challenge, one of those bounties of space was a low comedy, which I'm a fan of. I, I think that actually there's a, there's a lot of structures in this book that I think actually function the way he's written them. They feel like they're jokes. Like, they feel like setups for jokes, actually. Um, with like a preponderance of detail up front that is really like pedantic almost, but then you get like a punchline. So that crowd that you were describing earlier, there's the first time I really noticed this was um, as at the yeah at the very end of chapter one when Constant is in his car limousine probably mm-hmm. yeah limousine. And trying to get back out now from the estate. And this is at the very end. I think it's on your page 39. Um, 39. And there's, the crowd is still there. The crowd that we met very early on. The crowd is there still there. There was a crowd. Yeah. There still is a crowd. Mm-hmm. Great. There, um, Malachi Constant was invited into the Rumford estate to see the materialization of, of Rumford. Uh, apparently, people know that this happens, but no one has been allowed to see that before. He is the first. And so the crowd is there, like, blocking the limousine, shouting at it, whatever, um, wanting to know what he saw. And so uh, Vonnegut gives some of these characters in the crowd some te- some uh, dialogue. One woman says, We've got a right, shouted a woman. She showed her two fine children to Constant. And then this part that I just think is is so good in terms of, like, setup and punchline. Another woman told Constant what it was the crowd felt it had a right to. We've got a right to know what's going on, she cried. Um, where it's just like, so just in that line where mm-hmm. it's like he literally describes the thing and then immediately uh, just, like, re- rephrases it or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's another example of this that I'm just going to jump way ahead. Um, Can I pause yes, just because it, it takes place in that exact same, on the exact same oh, yeah, page? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this, I don't know if it really helps to push the narrative forward, mm-hmm. but it is a just a fine, fine image mm-hmm. invoked by a bald man made an attempt on constant life, Constance's life with a hot dog. Yes. Stabbed at the window glass with yes. it. Splayed the bun. Broke the frankfurter. Left a sickly sunburst of mustard and relish. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. We've talked a lot about hot dogs on this podcast. Yes, we have. And we know they're not dogs, I guess. Mm. We've been revealed that information. Uh, whatever was stabbed at that window, it's a hilarious image. Oh, no. And I can't get over it. No, I'm glad you pulled that out. I, I completely forgot about that point. Never forget. Yeah. That's what they say. That's what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, so later on, much later, at this point, um, throughout the narrative, we start on Earth, we next go to Mars, then we go to Mercury, and later Titan. Um, this is on Mars. He, uh, it, it's another another thing that I, I think just reads like a setup and then a punchline. So this is, what, well, I should say, when we go to Mars in Chapter 4... There's also this distinctive shift in the narrative and in the storytelling. Um, all of a sudden, we are introduced to this character, Unk, 
So chapter four called all caps bold tent rentals. Oh, then there's then there's you know this this song that we sing all over the galaxy now. Yes. Do you want to sing? Uh, do you want to sing it real quick? For I the, for the listeners. Would, would love to. Um, let me get my voice. <clears throat> <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, and by get my voice um, into its proper place in the octave range, yeah. takes a while. Being in corporeal form, mm-hmm. you don't realize how much extra work goes into making this crystal clear, beautiful, angelic voice. That's right. But I am ready. All right, you just want to sing this 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 one verse for him. Yes, I think they'll know it. Sing along if you know it, guys. Right. Rented a tent, a tent, a tent. Rented a tent, a tent, a tent. Rented a tent, rented a tent. Rented a rented a tent. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, brings a tear to my eye. I know. Both of them. Makes one me... tear to both of them. Mm-hmm. A giant tear that meets in the middle. Wow. Yep. That's a good. That's uh, where your tear ducts are. Yes. Huh. Inside of my nose. Interesting. Those snot and boogers. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So when you cry or when you have a cold, it's... I have to blow my nose. Exactly. Yes. So at the beginning of chapter four, we're, we're introduced to this character, Unk, who we've never met before. And let's see, we are on Mars all of a sudden, which uh, I don't know that we've gotten there before. We're on Mars. There's this military all of a sudden. Uh, there's the these characters who we've never met, basically. So all of a sudden, as you're, you're reading the first three chapters, there's a cohesive narrative. Chapter four happens completely different. We right. have new characters. We're on a different planet. Right. Um, so that alone. Mm-hmm. Still uh, using English, mm-hmm. the formatting of the book still seems relatively the same. So that's the only way mm-hmm. that you're not totally disoriented. Exactly. I would say. The font choice Good choice. decision there. Still, yeah, still bold titles. Mm-hmm. Much larger. Yeah. Great. There's another one of these like setups and then punchlines. I think that I, I really, I just I love how these are written. So, Vonnegut's describing this new setting on Mars, this military, and then there's this big stake in the ground or this post in the ground. He's kind of describing it, and then there's this paragraph that says. Something painful was going to happen to the man at the stake. Something from which the man would want to escape very much. Something from which he was not going to escape because of the chains. <laughs> um, right. I'm like, who, who writes a book like that? I think that's just so Fantastic. great. Um, yeah, immediately, you know, that first line seemingly gives you a dire situation yeah. with the you know, half chance or off chance of some sort of hope that, that he'll... Uh-huh. Be released and then immediately cuts it short. Yeah. If it's not going to happen. Uh-uh. We're, yeah. Playing with expectations in that way, I think, is one of Kiravonnegut's strong suits. Yeah. You can sort of see where this is going and immediately says, nope, it's not going there. Yep. But good try. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting in the way which we could, end, I mean, I'm sure we'll end up talking about the overall thematics of the book, but mm-hmm. in some ways, it could seem comparable to the, the the fact that maybe we don't really have as much choice uh, as we thought that we did. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, this sort of natural flow of our minds where we think the story is going to go, 
you know, it t- ends up not going there, and there's right. nothing we can do about it in, yeah. in some sense. Yeah. That's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, the whole, the whole book, I mean, there's almost no way from the way it starts, even though at the beginning when we meet Rumford and he says to Malachi Constant, you're going to go to Mars, you're going to go to Mercury, you're going to go to Titan. Yep. And he says, I'm not going to any of those places. Right. So even though it's announced at the very beginning of the book, this is what happens. Yep. The, the way in which it happens or any of that, I never could have predicted or expected. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, I want to go back briefly to yeah, please. one of the things that I noticed with regards to the previous book that we just finished, mm-hmm. Flatland, was that, I mean, obviously Flatland was written in Earth time mm-hmm. before this book, mm-hmm. say roughly 65 or so years before. Much before, yeah. And, you know, Kurt Vonnegut obviously read a lot, I would assume, you know, knows his precedence in the science fiction field. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if this is a spe- like specifically riffing on Flatland, the book, but, you know, Constant himself, you know, I think he, you know he's pretty self-aware that he's somewhat morally vacant, mm-hmm. void in some ways, has all the things in the world, but is still unsatisfied with it in some ways. And so this uh, line was pretty interesting to me. Well, well, first off, I mean, the fact that yeah. his name meant faithful messenger yeah. plays into this point. So, so he talked about, you know, so constant pine, I'm, I'm quoting here, on our page 12, so jumping back a bit. Constant pined for just one thing, a single message that was sufficiently dignified and important to merit his carrying it humbly between two points. Uh, if we think about hmm. points from yeah. Flatland, yeah. you know, essentially, you know, well, the point in the previous book was solipsistic, couldn't understand any reality outside of himself. So, you know, if we could give that, those traits to, to Constant, uh, you know, essentially, by carrying something between two points, it was this impetus to become a line, mm-hmm. to become something which could mm-hmm. understand hmm. or consider uh, realities, people, yeah. things beyond himself. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, and I don't know if Kurt Vonnegut directly was, you know, was relating to that book or, or was thinking about it specifically. But I just thought it was an interesting sort of connection that you know, he talks about being. So jumping back even more pages, back to page yeah. seven, uh, constant existed as a point. Mm-hmm. Could not imagine what it would be like to exist in any other way. So that is, you know, directly oh, man, that yeah. point um, from Flatland that, you know, can't, can't imagine what it would like to be in any other way and yeah. can't imagine anything that would change his opinion of that. Which mm-hmm. was, I don't know, I thought it was interesting. And again, I don't know if Kurt Vonnegut was directly riffing off of that book, but, but it seems... Yeah. Almost too convenient for him to not at least have read it before, I would guess. Yeah, and then yeah, and then to have this this Rumford and his dog existing in this Chronos and Classic in Fundibulum, mm-hmm. which uh, it completely is another space time mm-hmm. um, uh, where they are they exist as like a wave function. They they cross time and space. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's it's like. A, it's like wave wave phenomenon in probability. You know, it, it could exist or it could not exist. Right. Um, so for that to be, in some ways, the reason that he's taken out of his 
his point point land or line land right into this bigger reality is pretty amazing yeah yeah absolutely and, i mean what i like about that so i mentioned you know page 12 and page 7 mm-hmm. you know a lot happens yeah in those five pages in meaning you know not not a lot happens as far as the amount of words used mm-hmm. which again the font is beautiful but you know Kirvani really packs it in you know yes. makes sim like makes the very complex uh, ideas you know these the entire book of flatland sort of condensed into mm-hmm. five pages mm-hmm. in some sense mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah that's kudos yeah Kurt and again just in terms of the overall narrative then all of that stuff happening so quickly within that first chapter mm-hmm. in some ways he's told us like everything right. that will end up being important by the final chapter but we have just no way of knowing that like oh this this point that he makes is what's like the key to everything at the end just Definitely. have no way of knowing that Absolutely. but then it all it all does come back around by the end mm-hmm. um, I mean so the other thing in that very first chapter when Constant and Rumford are just talking back and forth and after Rumford says, "Yeah, you'll uh, you're gonna go to all of these different planets, and you're gonna end up in Titan." Rumford and Constant are talking, and like Constant's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna go there. Like, who cares? Like, whatever." Um, and uh, and then they just like are comparing pictures of women. Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, Rumford has this picture of the, the sirens of Titan. Malachi Constant has this picture of Miss Canal Zone. Uh, runner-up in the Miss Universe contest, and uh, and you know, so they're like comparing these pictures or whatever. But then, so those those sirens of Titan, which the book is named after, obviously, we see this photograph of them. Constant uses that in like an ad campaign, maybe in the next chapter. But then we don't hear anything about them again at all until like right. the very last chapter. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes it reminds me of what some of our film historians in nine hundred years in your guys' future will will talk about the first silver age of television, mm-hmm. which is uh, a time like where shows like Breaking Bad were happening, and a show which uses a lot of symbolism and foreboding. So, since so there will be there'll be something which appears to be kind of a throwaway image early on in, a, in an episode of a mm-hmm. season and later on turns out to be something much more complex that relates and, and reveals you know, a lot more than you originally thought. So, so some signs that you know, have a lot more meaning than they're, than they're given originally when they show up. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, I, I think that's you know, kind of an interesting parallel in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before we had instant dissemination of television shows, you know, I can watch all of Breaking Bad in five seconds now, mm-hmm. which is nice. Mm-hmm. Books we still have to read word by word, line yeah. by line, but it's better that way. Mm-hmm. You know, our attention spans have grown longer since the hashtag wars. I don't know if I want to uh, talk about some of these characters in particular. We've mentioned a few of them, and what starts to happen then over the course of the book. Because I, I really want to get towards the back half of this book because that's when a lot of it just really like We've been talking about the back together. half of this book yeah, I know. for the whole first the half. The whole first half of the show. Well, right. the whole second half of the show needs to talk about the first half. Okay, perfect. So you've got to really flip it around at some point. 
Talk about whatever we want, I guess. That's true. It, it is your podcast. Well, whatever. So, uh, yeah, we'll teeter. We'll figure out how the teeter totter works. Yeah. At some point. <laughs> I think there's a, a lever or something, some right. kind of simple machine. Maybe an inclined plane. Oh, maybe. But the question is, for you listeners, mm-hmm. is it rolling downward or are we going upward? Oh. You know, is this going to be a struggle all the way to the top, uh-huh. or you know, are we on? Is it going to get smoother as we go? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? You, you. Only time will tell for you. Yeah. So, in terms of figuring out, well, there's these couple things that happen throughout the narrative. One is figuring out who's the good guy, if if any, that could be questioned. Right. And then also figuring out who controls who. Um, there's these two like two things happen that way. So originally, you know, I thought, oh, Rumford, great, cool. But then later, you start to think, well, like, oh, okay, there's this. Constant, who turns into Unk, we find out that that character is one and the same. Um, and he starts to seem like kind of the good guy. And then we find out, well, there's other characters. We meet Boaz on Mars. He seems like, uh, when we meet him, questionable as to his intents and who he is. And then he also has this like change of character. So... I, almost all the characters actually now that I say that I think all of them we meet them they're they're one person I think every single one of them as far as like character development they mm. change they're all very dynamic they all change almost like in some very substantial way from the time that we meet them to the time that we're done with them absolutely yeah I, I would totally agree with that point you know even if so in, in a lot of the cases, that, that change that we see happens because some drastic event actually befalls them. Uh-huh. But in other cases, Rumford himself is the one I can think of. We finally are made aware of, towards again, the very end, mm-hmm. where, where he finds out that, or we become aware of his awareness of the motives behind what he's been doing. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, that's interesting, too. Like, where does this external motivation come from and the the things that end up causing the changes in the people? It's mm-hmm. all, yeah, it's all, it's all there. Yeah. You guys get, you should just read this book, actually. Yeah, you should read this book. We're... It's very good. <laughs> we're actually salespeople <laughs> from the future, and this whole thing has been a setup to get you to buy this book. Yeah. Kurt Vonnegut's ghost mm-hmm. is friends with me and Casper. Oh, is he friendly? Eh. <laughs> yeah, curmudgeon. Well, right away, he seemed friendly. <laughs> yeah, but you know, he reveals himself. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, right. He's, uh, yeah, he's a flasher. Mm-hmm. A ghost flasher. Does he only flash other ghosts? No, he'll flash anybody. The weird thing is that, so you know, well, we've seen pictures on Google 5.0 mm-hmm. of. Earth Halloween parties mm-hmm. where they'll dress up like a ghost, which is they cut right. the eye holes in the sheet. But I have not seen until recently meeting meeting Kurt, mm-hmm. meeting Ghost Kurt, that he actually wears a sheet. Yeah, he's a ghost underneath yes. a real ghost, but wears a sheet as well. Yes, and then he'll pull his sheet up and reveal mm-hmm. his uh, mm-hmm. ethereal penis. Yes, There's... it's unsettling for ghosts. 
it's unsettling for anybody that's watching. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's unsettling for she manufacturers. Yeah, you know they tried to get rid of the whole ghost connection. I mean, 500 years ago at least, yeah. I would say. I know, and it still hasn't worked. No one's buying sheets. Right. Mm-hmm. They're just like, I got a comforter. Yeah. I got pillows. But I was on a bed. My bed has two legs now, which was an improvement. <laughs> Weird. Uh, well, we get into that. But, yeah, I mean, who needs sheets? Mm-hmm. It's just a thi- it's not, It doesn't keep me warm, really. It's no. too thin. True. No. It's just another thing for me to wash. I'm anti-sheet, actually, yeah. I have only blankets. That's true. Great. Do you yeah. have... A- Comforter. Yes. For when it's cold out. Right. Do you have pillowcases? Mm. <laughs> They're kind of like sheets. They are a little a bit thin, like sheets. It's kind of a waste of time. But at the same time, you don't want all your gross sweat in mm. your actual pillows. Mm-hmm. But well, after sheets are on top of you. So. Yeah, I mean, after the pillowcase manufacturers and the sheet manufacturers had that gigantic war. Right. I mean, we saw who won there. Right. Uh sheet manufacturers mm-hmm. when they blocked when they covered the sun with a giant sheet yeah 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 and yeah. then everybody froze to death mm-hmm. and they're like oh yeah you wish you had sheets now you wish you want you that just barely mm-hmm. extra warmth right who cares if you're sweating you're freezing to death right idiot fortunately the uh the down comforters staged that gorilla attack mm-hmm. no one saw coming of course mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you're hiding you said the the pillow no, the down comforter. The down comforter. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I thought that was the pillow people, but you're right. Yeah, the down comforter. They, they were just puppets at that point. Of course. Mm-hmm. Well, what they, the world didn't realize was that they had been slowly making the entire world allergic to gorilla fur, and they'd been filling their comforters with gorilla fur. That's mm-hmm. a gorilla attack. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, everybody sneezed to death. Mm-hmm. It was a real tragedy. Yeah. Is this getting too much into spoilers? We might have to edit this out. Oh, okay. What we'll this, we'll this out? Sure. We, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to see Change how it goes. Change now. Ugh. Yeah. Well. So back to this, this yeah. book. Oh, oh, yeah. This book. This is not near as fun as talking about spoilers. Well, here's the thing. Saying. I haven't even gotten to any of my points on my notes, so. Oh, jeez. Speaking about points. Yeah. <laughs> I've talked about one already. Him you got being, some him points. being a point. Yeah, exactly. So point one. Two points make a line. Not necessarily. Okay. It takes two. To make make the thing go right. You got it. The tango. So, let's see. Just a, just to sketch sort of the progression from place to place, because it's going to be important to how we get to Titan. This one character, Constant slash Unk, starts on Earth, goes to Mars, goes to Mercury... Uh, he goes back to Earth, I guess at that point. Right. And then to Titan. Yes. So other characters, Beatrice Rumbird, who starts on Earth, we find out also goes to Mars. Okay. Different name. And then we meet her back on Earth, different name. And then goes to Titan as well. Uh, Rumbird, we meet on Earth, of course. We meet on Mars. Do we actually meet him on Mars, or do we just find out later that he was controlling everything on Mars? Truth be told, I do not remember. I don't remember either. We find out he was controlling everything on Mercury. Right. We find him again on back on Earth. 
and find out he's controlling a lot of things there. And then we meet him back on Titan. So he also goes, I guess, in some way to every location with us because he's just traveling on that right. Chronos and Classic in front of Bulum. He's a real inspiration to me mm. because How so? he, he essentially materializes in these places. Mm-hmm. It's not directly addressed whether or the percentage of his body which is truly corporeal mm-hmm. versus ethereal. Yeah. And so, you know, to see someone who is in some ways ethereal yeah. do, you know, perform all these large important tasks, real inspiration to me and the ghost gang. <laughs> yeah. The GG, which I only sort of roughly align myself to because I'm not a ghost. Exactly. But regardless, to see somebody do a thing... With, with so much import to all the char- all the characters in this story, without even even the use of, of uh, functional hands, mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's... and two legs, by the mm-hmm. way, which seemed important. Mm-hmm. Now he seems to be he's traveling around with this dog as well, which we've done some dog research on this Ugh. show. Ugh. Yeah, don't get me started. Exactly, puke everywhere. <laughs> don't. Well, four legs? You kidding me? Sure. What do you think you are? Twice, twice a human? Get real. <laughs> you think you are four times Casper? You'd yeah. be pissed if you heard Cas- that. Casper? Oh, would he not? Casper the pissed ghost at that point? He would become that. Yeah. yeah. He's very bipolar. Yeah. People, yeah. they only film the kind parts of him. Yeah. 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 He's like that. Nice. He's pretty commanding behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Which anything you've ever seen of him is a is a documentary. I mean, mm-hmm. slash reality show, right? Slash biopic mm-hmm. of his of him when he was alive, right? Like Star Wars documentary, of course. So let's see. We've got we've got a few characters. This is where we really start finding out like who's actually controlling what anyone does throughout this narrative. We find out Rumford, because he can exist at all of these points at nearly the same time, he's actually been manipulating constant and specific, but like a gigantic war on Mars as well. <laughs> and things War effort on Mars. Yes. The war took place on Earth. Yes. Oh, right, right, right. No, that's a good point. We also, oh, well, when we go to Titan, we meet Salo, this Trafal Midorian. Don't get me started. Is it, is it time to talk about him or not? You tell me. Um, in, in a minute. Okay. And um, it's been close enough to a minute. Salo. Not a fan. I am a fan. Let's do... It's time for Point Counterpoint. Okay. Do we have music? There it is. Yeah, it's high noon on this spaceship. Yeah. Give me a point. Give me a, my every point that I make is probably going to be the same point. That's all I have to say, but I'm just going to give it to you every time. Would you like a point or would you like a counterpoint? Stop. I'll leave that up to you. All right. Let's see. Let me find where we first meet him. He he I'm even going to go so far to say and granted I talk in a lot of hyperbole. He might be my favorite character in this book. I just speak the truth, no hyperbole, no falsifications, uh, n- you know, nothing so far as even a white lie. You're dead wrong. He's the worst character. <laughs> Salo. 
He is 11 million Earthling years old from another galaxy from the small Magellanic cloud. He is four and a half feet tall. Go on. That's a point. <laughs> That's your point? No, it's not really. That's why we're supposed to love this guy? No, I'm just describing him. Okay, keep describing him. Keep describing. Read two more lines of description, and I will. And you'll run into my point. <laughs> he had a skin with the texture and color of the skin of an Earthling tangerine. That's fine. You can have any any color skin, any texture skin you want. What's that next line? Because you're you're walking into my point, my friend. Salo <laughs> had three light. Deer-like legs. Oh! <laughs> exactly. That's my point. Now it's your turn. His feet were an extraordinarily interesting design. And I'm sure he had three of them. He's being an inflatable sphere. That's fine. But one too many of those. Exactly. Well. So that's why you, you just described the worst character in the, in the book. <laughs> What's your point now? You can go ahead with your point. All right. He's, uh, let's see. He he builds all these sculptures, which are kind of awesome. Wow! For instance, you know, for a three-legger, I would say they're at least fifty percent. Well, yeah, I would say thirty-three percent worse than a two, any than any two-legged child. So make. here's another. My kid could make this. Is what I'm saying. Here's another one of these like joke setups that I quite like. Mm-hmm. Talking about um, when Constant Beatrice. Oh, and now their son, who I just totally forgot about. He's in this book too. He ends up being kind of important. In He's some in way. it. Chrono. Um, I would say Chrono. Chrono. Sure. Tomato to tomato, 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 tomato. Tomato. <laughs> to To Chrono, to Chrono, whatever you said. Yeah. It says, Constant leaned against a statue of St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis was trying to befriend two hostile and terrifyingly huge birds, apparently bald eagles. Constant was unable to identify the birds properly as titanic bluebirds since he hadn't seen a titanic bluebird yet. He'd arrived on Titan only an hour before. So, you know, there's just like, again, this like, explain, 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 and it's like, oh, but, you know, you wouldn't really know. Right. Um, Yeah, all of that previous description was kind of useless in some way, but it's still interesting and and funny. Completely. Way way to put that out there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Did you, so, I don't know if you've even seen this film, but the main question that arises Mm -hmm. is, are there Titanic bluebirds in the movie Titanic? Oh, probably, right? Well, you know, is Leonardo DiCaprio the main character, one of them, when he says, oh. I'm, the, I'm the king of the world, and he puts his arms out as if he's a bird? He's flying, right? Right. I, I would so. say he is. Yeah. He's, he's not, I don't know, is he wearing blue? It's been so long. We should have We should have watched that film before we In did advance, this whole thing. Of course. It was, it, we knew it was going to come up. Mm-hmm. Sirens of Titanic. Mm-hmm. The ship sinking. That was the, the siren, the big alert. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, oh, did I, that derail? Was that, was that a tangent? I thought that was right on point. You said well, anyway as if that was a tangent. I said anyway because I feel like we should close the segment of point-counterpoint. Oh, okay. We both Who won? We, we had a point and a counterpoint. I think... Galaxy, you decide. There you go. So, I know, I, I, I really love this character. I, there's something about him that's completely endearing to me, and... I can't describe it exactly. I mean, this plant that he comes from, Trafalmador, is fantastic. And we find out may also be influencing the course of human history. Yeah, I mean, we might as well like say that. So 
at some point, Salo is, or maybe just the narrator is describing what all of different landmarks on Earth, why they were built. And as it turns out, they were all built under the influence of the Trafalmadorians sending messages to Salo on Titan. So, for instance, um, Stonehenge, the meaning of Stonehenge in Trafalmadorian, when viewed from above, is replacement part being rushed with all possible speed. The Great Wall of China is another um, on and on. And so, all of a sudden, we found out that Rumford is controlling constant and much of Earth history. But now we find out these Trafalmadorians are probably controlling even more of, like, all humankind. Right, and, and also controlling Rumford himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, when we see him, when we find him on Titan, he's pretty disenfranchised with yes. the whole thing. Uh, there's a pretty good, let's ebook this for just one second. There's a quote that I think is really interesting on here. Rumford says, quote, There is something you should know about life in the solar system, he said. Being chronosymclastic infundibulated, I've known it about it all along. It is, nonetheless, such a sickening thing that I've thought about it as little as possible. The sickening thing is this. Everything that every Earthling has ever done has been warped by creatures on a planet 150,000 light years away. Mm-hmm. The name of the planet is Trophamador. <sighs> Trophamador? How do you, you did it better I've than I did? I've been saying now, now you've got me all confused. Trophamador. Yeah. Trophamadorians, uh, I'm assuming when Kirbani wrote this book, he didn't intend Rumford to stumble over that pronunciation. No way. That was my that was my ad that was my adding I added that for effect mm-hmm. you know uh, but regardless I think that sentiment still holds up as mm. very you know a very interesting undercutting of kind of the whole project of not only this book but humankind in some mm. ways it's it's a macro version of exactly the same thing you've talked about with these like jokes that end up yeah. undercutting themselves yeah. Is, yeah. it's sort of uh, an elaborate explanation of a thing and then an, an immediate or a very harsh, mm-hmm. sharp, essentially, you know, undercutting or making the whole thing not seemingly useless, mm-hmm. but, you know, kind of reflect on, like, what is the value of this mm-hmm. if it's all essentially to get Chrono's yeah. good luck piece back as the replacement part for the ship. Yeah, you know what? You know we had to go through all this for for this one purpose for uh-huh. one goddamn three legged motherfucker. <laughs> Not worth it, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, but the book was great. <laughs> sure, I'm happy I read it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's well, and that's the thing. So, so this whole project is to get a replacement part for Salo's ship, so we can continue the message. Now, counterpoint. <laughs> To that, oh, back because, to point counterpoint. Oh, yeah, we are because round two. Vonnegut continues. Then, so Salo has the reason he's even on stuck on Titan is his ship is broken down, and he has this message to deliver, and he's under instruction to not open it whatsoever. So, and uh, he's eleven million Earthling years old. He's from a planet where they he's a machine. They invented machines, which eventually, like, 
singularity basically and mm-hmm. built better machines of themselves i would say terminated sure yeah skynetted exactly yeah yeah and uh and so he's he's not wanted to open that message and he won't he won't he won't matrix um, but he's made friends with uh rumford and eventually um overcomes the his mechanistic nature opens this uh, message and and then does read it aloud to Constance. I think Rumford has disappeared then at that point. And this whole message, which he has not opened and he spent his, his entire life uh, trying to deliver, he opens it up. I'll just, I'll audiobook this. Would you like to know what the message is that I've been carrying for almost half a million earthling years? The message I'm supposed to carry for 18 million more years? He held out the square of aluminum in a cupped foot. A dot, he said. A single dot, he said. The meaning of a dot in Tralfamadorian, said old Salo, is greetings. Yep. That's it. (laughs) That's that's the whole deal. Um, And so once again, like... So yeah, Rumford is bummed if if he's been manipulated and human history has been manipulated. Um, but then immediately Salo then like gives in and opens his message and it's the same sort of like oh right. greetings. That's the message. Definitely. I mean two things on that. One I think uh, I mean the really interesting part is that this whole book, we've seen people essentially taking paths which were predetermined, mm-hmm. predestined for them. Mm-hmm. The first time that somebody really yeah. does something against whatever that trajectory is, is Salo, yeah. who is programmed to not do that. I mean, mm-hmm. so the really only uh, human, mm-hmm. as vicious air quotes, in some ways, character in the way that we think about humans and, and you know, human ability for mm-hmm. free will, free choice. Uh, he's really the only one that makes sort of a, a human, mm-hmm. air quotes, decision in the entire book, and it's at that point. Yeah. Also, uh, to bring back something from the very beginning again, Kirvani gets really great at this, Every, nothing seems to be a throwaway line, when constant, you know, he, so he goes on this journey in order to um, essentially become a line as mm-hmm. we've discussed and it ends up the eventuality of all of this all the novel we just read mm-hmm. all of his activities on several planets and, and a moon is a dot mm-hmm. literally a dot it's a point you know so so to really think about he was concerned about his own purpose being more than a dot but then he realizes that all of not only humanities, but this one from Alphadorian's purpose is literally a dot, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty poetic, yeah. um, beautiful, sad yeah. statement yeah. all rolled up. And, and yeah, again, connecting some, connecting a dot from the nah. beginning of the book. Well, when you, so I'm glad you brought that up because um, this is, I mean, this is uh, one of the quotes that I've got written down here. I've got several that really stuck with me in this book and I felt like defined the whole book then and one of them is exactly what you were just referring to with Salo breaking his machine um, programming essentially so just above what I read just a second ago I'm going to audiobook this too so Salo has been 
programmed to deliver this message. And um, because he's this machine, he doesn't open it. That's his orders, and he doesn't. But he has met this human, Rumford, on Titan, and um, and become friends. Um, all of a sudden, he identifies with this human being and, and their friends, and eventually, because of this Krynos and Classic in Fundibulum, Rumford disappears. He he goes on outside of our galaxy. And Salo rushes back, opens the message, and reads it for that friendship. Rumford's gone. Salo meets Constant and Beatrice now, who have arrived on Titan. And Salo says, You asked the impossible of a machine, said Salo, and the machine complied. The machine is no longer a machine, said Salo. The machine's contacts are corroded, his bearings fouled, his circuits shorted, and his gears stripped. His mind buzzes and pops like the mind of an earthling, fizzes and overheats with thoughts of love, honor, dignity, rights, accomplishment, integrity, independence. And so here is um, a time where we see Salo, as you just said, break sort of make that decision for himself um, and, and do this human act of friendship and generosity. So Salo does that, but I think that there's a few other times where these other characters in the book maybe maybe do or say similar things, but almost all like at the very end. Like we've had to read this entire, as we've said a few times, we've had to read this like entire premise than just to like have have the turn or have the punchline at the end almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, I've got I've got written down four characters: Boaz, Beatrice, Constant, Salo, who all do or say similar things to that. Three of them: Beatrice, Constant, Salo, are all within the last you know chapter or maybe two of the book. Sure. Boaz, let me let me go back to that one though, because that's the one that happens earlier actually. Right. Boaz, we meet him on Mars, and he ends up going to Mercury with Unk or Constant. So he well, okay, so they meet these creatures. What are those creatures? Harmoniums? Right. They glow, I know that. Yeah, they do. In this cave. Mm-hmm. Boaz is taking care of them, um, like playing the music. Playing they the like, music, they like music. Yes, right? yeah, they, they like the vibrations. That's, that's, right. that's sort of a really interesting, beautiful part um, or scene when yeah, so Boaz um, takes care of these. Well, it doesn't really take care of them necessarily, yeah, yeah. but performs music for them or yes. plays music for them. But then he realizes that you know if they end up touching whatever's producing the sound, they end up dying. Right. But the way they die is essentially by an overload of ecstasy, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting, uh, sort of strange moment. Yeah. Um, you know, but you know, so, so he wants them to have all of this ecstasy, yeah. or this, this pleasure. But you know, if he doesn't want to kill them either, and they become really. You know, they become friends with him. They become a place where he 
develops meaning for his own life with regards to, you know, really looking after a thing that has its own free will in order to, you know, to actually sort of kill itself if it wants to get close enough to the music, which I think is a direct break from Boaz's earlier power Mm -hmm. where in the Martian army, he was one of the few actual leaders who, well, actual leaders could be put in vicious air quotes too because so he he led a whole regiment of troops through these sort of mind control chips where where he could you know program them to do whatever he wanted essentially and stand as exceptionally rigid or or march Uh, so he had this total control and they didn't but he wanted he finally found the satisfaction where you know he could really look after a thing by it being a decision not only on his part but by the these creatures making decisions on their own right. on their own part so you know i think a lot of it a central thesis to the whole book yeah. revolves around what and where does mm-hmm. free will actually exist who has it mm-hmm. and i think that might might play into your other three which happen late in the book because yeah. especially after salo does his thing that's right Potentially, there's there's no Tremalfadorians controlling mm-hmm. anything anymore. So now, yeah. there's the potential to make actually meaningful decisions, and not necessarily meaningful in like a grandiose way, mm-hmm. but just some one's own decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, which is pretty. It's a uh, possibility of, of of freedom or of mm-hmm. choice or of, of something like that. Definitely. Yeah, there's well a couple things now. I mean, so the the specific quote um, that. Boaz says as he's decided to stay on Mercury um, and live the rest of his life there and Constant leaves um, on their spaceship, Boaz says I found me a place where I can do good without doing any harm and I can see I'm doing good and them I'm doing good for know I'm doing it and they love me Unc as best they can I found me a home <laughs> yeah that that moment as you said it's it's like about as opposite as could be from when we first met him, where he's actually got physical control over everyone and and, and physical because he still has a, a kind of control here, mm-hmm. but in the sense of like um, those har- totalitarian yeah, control, those harmoniums, there is kind of still a freedom of of choice or yeah. like um, the symbiosis as opposed yeah. to a total like domineering sense of control like everybody Mm -hmm. gets to choose uh what's best for them yeah or you know what they think is best for them Mm -hmm. and even if it's what they choose is not what's best for them at least they could actually choose it yeah which is you know this this martian army ended up being a a, but you know an intentional sacrifice in order to reduce or or eliminate war on Mm -hmm. earth so in some sense all of these activities which were totally controlled were for the greater good but if they weren't actually decisions meaning you know, that's they right. had an alternative then that's right. it's a less you know it's it's a less um you know, I don't know empathetic gesture mm-hmm. by all the people who did the sacrifice because mm-hmm. you know they also thought that they were trying to win the war but it was they, you know, they didn't even know that they, there was no way they could win the war yeah um so, yeah. I don't know, like, the, who's pulling the strings uh-huh. uh, is, is kind of the central thesis. Mm-hmm. And again, 
those the strings aren't cut. We find kind of like yeah. finally yeah, yeah. kind of find a three-legged puppet master at the end. And once he tears himself apart, literally, yeah. then the strings can be cut That's and right. real, genuine, empathetic mm -hmm. beauty and action can sort of occur now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, and so we see Boaz maybe make the first gesture towards that. Really, you know, so while basically while they're on Mercury, Constant spends his whole time trying to figure out how do we get off of here eventually finds these messages which it turns out are being controlled by Rumford. Boaz, meanwhile, has made this different decision mm -hmm. um, which really, it, it truly didn't matter what Rumford was doing at that point. He decides I'm going to stay here with these harmoniums and we're just going to jam, bro. <laughs> you know, like... Um, I wish that would have been the actual line. <laughs> yeah, right. We're just going to jam, bro. That's actually how I describe it. There ain't nothing you can do about it. Yeah. That's how I describe, and I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Close Encounters with the Third Kind, but the way that the the alien creatures communicate with the Earth humans in that is a similar thing. Like they just jam out together, They're just playing music, have a drum circle, or whatever you know. Like fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's a similar thing. But okay, so so Salo has that like break with his machine self. But then also, like, does get the replacement part mm -hmm. and leaves. Um, so when he, well, or prepares to leave, after that has been, like, revealed, he actually takes himself apart. He disassembles himself um, because he's he's had it, right? And so, yep. so Beatrice and Constant get old on Titan. At some point, Constant... They, they, you know, they live wherever on their own. Constant goes back to visit Beatrice. She's writing this entire, like, history on the floor. and But she says then to Constant, um, and this is directly the opposite of what her character says at the very beginning. She says at some point, the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody, she said, would be to not be used for anything by anybody. And in that sense it starts to read more as not being used by or for anything by anybody as like this empathetic um, like Boaz and the Harmoniums um, rather than this like she literally was used for every device by Rumford who was used by the uh, Tralfemadorians you know mm -hmm. and then Constance says a very similar thing Beatrice dies. Spoiler alert. Constant says... Yeah, if we haven't... We should just put a spoiler tag <laughs> yeah, yeah, on the whole yeah. episode. Right. Or, on know, every... Can, on the whole podcast. Right. Every 30 seconds, we can edit this in. Yeah. Just spoiler, because it's coming. That's right. There's many of them in this. If you haven't read the book... Yeah. You're doing it wrong. Yeah, right. We're... We're the... We're Salo right now. Mm. We're going to control you to read the book before you listen. Yeah. If you gotten this far and you haven't read the book... We've messed up. Uh, I would say it actually hasn't happened because we're not going to allow it. We're going to pull the strings. We have the the luxury of nine hundred year nine hundred years of mm -hmm. of Earth future. We can we can make that happen. That's right. If you've got this far, you've read it. We all know that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the spoilers. We don't even need to give the spoiler all tag right. anymore. All right. Good. Yeah. Another problem solved. So Salo takes himself apart, disassembles himself, and. Uh, 
constant though you know spends a long long time trying to put him back together trying to fix this thing and at some point uh beatrice dies constant's like sitting there and like sailor just walks over like hey man uh and constant says like hey i was working on you i i didn't think i did it right he was like nah you did but uh i didn't feel like right doing anything or whatever and so constant though is then explaining to him to Salo about Beatrice and says a similar thing says it took us that long to realize that a purpose of human life no matter who is controlling it is to love whoever is around to be loved um, and so again we've now all of a sudden got this like distinctive break with um, with the past of of that control of which people have no freedom or no choice in mm-hmm Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, that's the interesting thing about, I think, the way that Kurt Vonnegut tends to write, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, constant subverting of expectations Mm -hmm. and constant breaks from even the previous line, Uh, lots of sort of topsy-turvy, who's controlling what, who's making any decisions, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Yeah. We're sort of constantly left in this space of sort of sort of floating out in space, untethered to any any moral reality or any moral understanding of circumstance. But with a line like that, I mean, I, I think that he sort of coalesces the, the entire message of the book, which is, yeah, I mean, you're regardless of what you're doing you're doing something and you mm-hmm. might as well yeah you know connect with whoever else is there to be connected with whether it's a, yeah. a robot whether it's your your son that you were told you're going to have and didn't know or mm-hmm. maybe necessarily want to mm-hmm. um regardless of circumstance you always have at least the choice of what does it mean sort of personally right. like what you make up your own mm-hmm. sort of understanding of it it's kind of an existential yeah. understanding of you know you're give you're dealt a certain number of cards that you mm-hmm. didn't get a choice in but you do have a choice in how you respond to those mm-hmm. yeah sort of create you fashion your own meaning out of whatever that is mm-hmm. um even salo yeah like i didn't i didn't know if i wanted to to speak oh yeah you know that's yeah his, still his sort of prerogative and again uh-huh. where he sort of shows that he's kind of even more advanced version of a human 18 million year old mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, it's interesting yeah yeah I mean and there's there's a few other times like that where I think that um, Vonnegut sums some things up or describes the setting or characters in such a way that he does actually get at that same idea as you were saying of like regardless of maybe who's in control what are you going to do about it or or with like literally with what's next to you or like right at hand Mm -hmm. um or again that like like that what what again what i just read where constant says no matter who's controlling it life um love whoever's around to be loved um so there's there's a couple scenes too that i i found to just be like well one the first one, um, really amazing. The second one, the point which I was just like, this book, truly this book, more than any we've read, by the end of it, the very, very end, I I had 
had tears on the corners of my eyes. Um, it was it was so sweet by the end. Um, uh-huh. But the first, yeah, the first. You didn't um, have seven legs. I might tear up. Right, and it, and have your solidarity. weird snot tears or whatever. Right, don't make fun of my snot tears. Okay, it's not funny. Apologies. I forgive you. Oh, thank you. The first time is when Constant and Beatrice are back on Earth. Rumford has invented an entire religion to hate Constant. And um, and he's now, like, sending him off, making him climb up this, like, scaffolding to get in this spaceship um, in order to go away forever. Mm-hmm. And so he's climbing up uh, this ladder. Um, it says, sitting at the threshold of the spaceship on top of the ladder. And he's listening to Rumford give this ridiculous sermon about um, how the entire world hates Constant, basically. And then it says... Um, Constant did not listen closely to the sermon. His eyes saw a larger, more comforting sermon in the panorama of town, bay, and islands so far below. The sermon of the panorama was that even a man without a friend in the universe could still find his home planet mysteriously, heartbreakingly beautiful. I think that that image is one of the first times where we start to see that. So here, down on the, on the ground level, you have... Rumford preaching um, about constant essentially sending him off clearly at this point now revealing himself to be in control and yet constant is able to to look around and and, and see this other thing going on that's uh that is that is mysterious and heartbreaking and beautiful all at the same time Mm-hmm. So that happens once more at, at the very end. And this is the one, well, a few a few things, but let me just read it first. After Salo has his replacement part, his spaceship is ready to go. He offers to give Constant a ride home back to Earth to spend the rest of his days on Earth. He figures he might want to go home now. He drops him off, and I'll back up and talk about that later. But he drops him off. Salo looks around. It's winter. And there's this quote where it says, He, Salo, he looked at the perfectly white world, felt the wet kisses of the snowflakes, pondered hidden meanings in the pale yellow streetlights that shone in a world so whitely asleep. Beautiful, he whispered. And that's another one of those scenes. And at this point in the the narrative, possibly no one's controlling anyone now. Mm -hmm. And, um, and instead there's, there's snow and like mysterious streetlights and that's it. And that's like, that's beautiful. That's enough. Um, definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, you talk about, well, that mirrors in in some ways, it's not obviously his own home planet, but, Mm -hmm. um, references the other quote you just read which was find their own planet heartbreakingly yeah. beautiful so yeah this this other creature who has lived millions of years mm. uh finding can still find these novel experiences and in this time to really feel i was gonna say feel alive but but it's almost it's almost enough to just say just to really feel yeah uh yes. which is kind of interesting especially from mm. this you know, in science fiction, a lot of times the robot 
the the uh, the place yeah. where they fall apart, where where artificial intelligence can't match humanity, mm-hmm. is on the level of like these feelings yeah. or empathy. But in some ways, I'll have to give Salo credit, even though I despise him, that he he really does a really amazing job in this mm-hmm. book of empathizing with situations and and feeling different experiences in a way yeah. that uh, a lot of other characters seemingly unable to do mm-hmm. and actually that brings me to one I guess I, I found it a lot in the beginning of the book I mean before we find the resolution uh, where every the characters are sort of finally allowed free choice but but uh, an interesting part is that from my perspective is that the sort of infatuation or obsession with appearances by oh, yeah. uh, by the Earthlings. So I mean, I just ha- I have a few few moments that I'll just sort of rattle off, and then we can discuss sort of what that means about about all these different characters. So uh, I just remember um, I, I don't remember I, I wrote it down because I had to. All right. So I'm going to read this uh, ethereal list. Here we go. So Ransom K. Fern in one of the beginning of the book, near the beginning, uh, as a, they, he's called a sixty-year-old teenager, a philosophical mouse. So is this person who you know is older and presents himself as wise, but actually doesn't know a whole lot, yeah. but obsessed with the appearance of being sort of this philosopher. Um, the Magnum Opus Building, which is the um, Magnum Opus, is the corporation that. Uh, Constant's father sort of created and, and Constant inherited and continued to keep up uh, that rep- that referenced the 12 religions mm-hmm. of the world, 12 great religions of the world, and it mentions that uh, if some if the architect would have been asked to name those 12 religions, he wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. Uh, and it's a beacon of capitalism and not really a religious belief at all. Uh, so it appears to be the sort of deep... Uh, Intention, you know, very intentional purpose for this thing, but actually, it's pretty vacant. Mm-hmm. So, I guess you know, the interesting part is the the appearance versus the the internal vacancy. I, you know, I think Constant himself is very famous, very wealthy, accomplished everything that an Earthling can accomplish as far as within a capitalistic society, but is again, you know, morally vacant as a point and not a line. Much, you know, much less. Uh, even a square or a sphere or yeah. something, going back to Flatland a little bit. And this is this is a small um, moment, but when when he went in to first view the um, the appearance of Rumford, he disguised himself in order to go into the place. So just another you know, layer of mm. of hiding behind this sort of shell. Um, Rumford himself, when he materializes, he's essentially 100% appearance. Yeah. That you can't, like, touch him, really. Yeah. Sort of goes through him. So, you know, again, he's... Even though he seems like the most important character at that point in the book, he uh, he's vacant in, in, an, in another way, mm-hmm. in a sort of physical way. Um, and again, he's used for this single purpose of by the Traumalfadorians, even though he appears to have a great mission and an idea of what's going on. Um, the Martian War, everybody thought that it was... All the, the Martians who were fighting thought that it was for this great cause, but actually was a, was suicide, even though it had a cause. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just one that was different. I mean, I could sort of go on and on. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's one there's one line that I I highlighted as well, which yeah. just just this will be the last thing that I'll read, and then we can talk about this overall idea. But um, Rumford was talking about a man being carried from Earth to Mars in a flying saucer. He had volunteered for the Army of Mars, had already worn the dashing uniform of a lieutenant colonel in the assault infantry of that service. Um, this is audio booking it. He felt elegant, indeed, having been rather underprivileged spiritually on Earth, and assumed, as spiritually underprivileged persons will, that the uniform said lovely things about him. Mm-hmm. So it's not that this uniform was an external representation of something that was actually lovely about him, yeah. but the uni- uniform itself presented and said lovely things about him, as opposed to represented lovely things about him. So I think, you know, there's, there's a a ton of different moments and I could again still go on where there's a disparity between you know what what is presented uh and what is sort of actually true mm. in some ways yeah and that's you know a greater theme throughout the book like all all these motives seem to be driven by one thing mm. but they're actually either driven by something else or maybe nothing at all mm-hmm. which is you know, an interesting take on the whole. Yeah, the whole even even meaning of choice. Yeah, which is yeah. well, even just to. Um, I was just thinking that we hadn't really been talked about, um, and not that we need to, but I think it relates to your point. The actual so the title of the book, Sirens of Titan. I think what you're describing really does then key into. I mean that I think you're right. I think that maybe is a, a good example of the overarching idea of the book. Because calling the Sirens of Titan seems rather inconsequential. At the beginning, Rumford shows Constant this photograph and basically says, these are the most beautiful women in the entire universe. Here they are, the Sirens of Titan. And by the end, Constant is at like in the drain pump of this pool trying to get like all the algae and gunk out of the pool and it's there's this uh a mucolignous hump covering the three sirens of titan which turn out to just be the sculpture that salo made mm-hmm. that's at the bottom of the swimming pool on titan and so once again there's this photograph that's like the initiatory gesture here's these beautiful women Constant tries to like ruin it by using it in this advertising campaign using that image um, but then even at the end we see it's these sculptures that Salo carved and then even beyond that they're like covered in pond scum <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> um, similar kind of idea right yeah I mean because I guess I guess directly relating to what I was just saying mm-hmm. like he was totally infatuated with this appearance, yeah. and not only was that appearance depthless, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to go back <laughs> to Flatland, yeah. like, you know, yeah. it's only still surface, yeah. but also that appearance wasn't even exactly what it ended up, you know, portraying itself to mm-hmm. be. Yeah, it's that, that old, that Kurt Vonnegut. I know. You know. What a good one. Yep. Well, so just to... um. Just the, the one other thing that I want to say, just because personally, at, at the very end, this, as I say, this book hit me hard at the end, 
And um, I mean, one it was because I really like Salo, um, actually. But then when he offers to give Constant a ride home, um, there's this moment that happens, and this just caught me completely off guard. Would you do a nine-legged race with Salo? Is that how that would work? I've got seven. He's got three. Yeah. Gross. And I would definitely do a sack race. I don't know why I asked. Gross. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Your question. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. So, Salo uh, and Constant are on the spaceship. They're headed to Earth. So, I'm going to read this. On the trip back to Earth, Salo suspected that he made a tragic mistake in suggesting to Constant that he return to Earth. He began to suspect this when Constant insisted on being taken to Indianapolis, Indiana, USA. We, ha- we haven't talked about this on the podcast, but um, Indianapolis, Indiana, USA, um, my my original hometown. Oh, USA. really? Did you know that? I don't even know if we talked about it outside of the podcast. I don't think that we have. My, mm-hmm. As you know, my consciousness has been uploaded multiple times, many times, to my, my current physical body. Yep. I'm 928 years old, yep. and um, uh, this is this is this is where I come from. Sure. This is oh, the so one. You're, you're me. You're actually from the originally pre- the present that we're I'm from podcasting Earth. too. I'm from the Earth times. Do you think? Well, I mean, I'm not totally yeah. up on my time travel, but could yeah. your 28 year old self? Yeah, they could read. They could listen to it. And I'm, and I'm guessing, let me think, 2015 or so? I think we'd be right around then, yes. So, I mean, we measure it a little bit differently now, but I think it would, uh, yeah. And I don't want to derail your point, mm-hmm. but if you, and I don't know how specifically you want to identify yourself mm-hmm. to yourself, but could you potentially be putting your 28-year-old self on a trajectory mm. to this point? I mean, are you the Salo? Are you the constant? Are you, or not not constant? Are you the Rumford? Rum are you the Kazakh? It's possible. Are you the dog? It's, it's the, now not, you might I'm be. You're pretty close. Dog. <laughs> I do Play, know that. Played on the window. Yeah, right. That's kind of what I'm looking for. Yeah. As far as I know, I'm not the hot dog. Right. That's all I know for certain. He's not the hot dog. In this life. But it's possible that my current self is setting my 28-year-old self on a trajectory through time and space to reach this moment. That's why it hit me so hard. Do you remember being, you know, 900 years ago? Do you remember this moment being called out to? I I don't want to say that I do for certain, but I do want to tell you that at that point, I, I wasn't in this current body. That sure. I'm in, that you're looking at now. As you know, we've known each other for a long time, right? You've seen some other variations. Sure. At that moment, always too many legs. Well, at that moment, I'm fairly certain I only had two legs, John. See, that's actually why I think we can potentially get along because, as much as your external body presents itself in this grotesque way, uh, you know, internally. You've defied all the stereotypes, and you seem like a two-legger. Is that why you and Casper get along? Because in in his corporeal life, you know, I've, yeah, I mm. haven't thought about it before, mm-hmm. but I would say yes. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel better actually about being friends with Casper. That's good. 
I'm going to give him a call. That's good. So as long as you are spiritually a two-legger, mm. I don't care how many legs you actually have. Right, because your religious beliefs, too. Yes. Yeah. Deep, deep, deeply into uh, religion. Yeah. As long as it's the two-legged religion that I... Uh, yeah, ascribe to. My only point bringing that up was to say that when I, when I read Indianapolis in this book, it, you know, as if it wasn't enough that this really is a kind of a beautiful conclusion to this book with, um, well, beautiful and complicated with that one scene um, with the the snow and the light from streetlights, but then also Salo, and this is where again Bonnie gets sort of there's a twist again. Because he implants a memory in Constance's mind so that right before he dies, he will have a memory or he'll have a, a, a vision of meeting his only friend in the universe, Salo. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Stoney. Stoney. Stoney, Stoney Stevenson. Stevenson. And Stoney Stevenson comes out of a golden spaceship encrusted with diamonds um, from a sunbeam which opens in the clouds. And out of it steps Stony Stevenson, and uh, and you know says hi, get in, we're going to paradise. Um, everybody's happy there forever, or as long as the bloody universe holds together. And so you know the last thing that Constant sees is this vision that was created for him. But so as if all that wasn't enough, though, when it's set in Indianapolis. I thought the end of this book for me was just killer. It was so good. Absolutely. Yeah. And it even, even though it was absolutely not a line that needed redeeming, mm-hmm. uh, the the line about you know a man without a friend in the universe yeah. can still find everything heartbreaking and beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, it still addresses that because mm-hmm. I think you know that was a very very like poignant line that gave him the sort of initiative to complete this yeah this Trem Alfadorian journey which they knew that he was going to do already anyways but uh but regardless like it was still that sentiment that that sent him on his way and then and then now he uh he has a friend again yeah. on some level yeah which we you know we know that ghosts exist mm-hmm. uh maybe unk didn't but mm-hmm. but you know at the end mm-hmm. he, even though it was uh Set up a certain way. Uh, maybe he, maybe they do both exist in paradise right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. You know, it's not that. You know, it's not we, that far to yeah. get there. Yeah, we could get there mm-hmm. right now. We yeah, could get there today. Left, if we left now, we'd still get there today. I would say so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you drive faster than I do. Mm-hmm. You've got seven lead feet. You know it. I do know it. So, unless you have other things, I, I did see that you brought notes today. But otherwise, we should probably uh, wrap this thing up pretty soon. I read all of my notes for that one point. Oh wow! Well, I'm through. With I really all wanted my to notes. hammer it home. Yeah, and become a point, and then become a line, mm-hmm. and, and then a square, and then a cube, mm-hmm. and then I wanted to grow two cylindrical legs. And then that's it. Oh, see, that's where I kept going. <laughs> and that's why you were mistaken. Uh. Well, uh, I think we should we should probably wrap this thing up. If you if you are finished, I'm finished. Uh, let's call it a thing. Okay. Do you want to um, wrap? Oh, we this do thing have out? to wrap it up. Yeah. When you see, here's the thing: it's a destiny. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a choice. No. Whether or not we're going to wrap it out or not. Exactly. 
But, you know, as they say, a man could not have a rapping skill in the universe, but still find his own raps heartbreakingly beautiful. Yeah, staggeringly, mysteriously, heartbreakingly beautiful. Yes. All right. Yep. Yep. Universal will to become. Wanna get some? Wanna go across space? Make sure it's not a waste, cause someone's controlling me. Gotta go to see what's happening out on Titan. Might be fighting a war on Earth. Don't know. Wanna go to Mars? I wanna go. It's a camp. Not the good kind of camp. They got tents. It sounds like fun, but it's not. Yep. 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 Sounds like fun up there on Mars. Gonna go up there and eat Snickers bars. Hungry, why wait? Uh, thirsty, get a date. Thirsty in the rap sense, meaning you're horny. This rap's corny. That's another earth term. Trying to get with my earthworms. Jim, that's a video game. Like The Sims. Speaking of Sims, that probably relates thematically to this book. This isn't a rhyme, but it's dramatically. Keeps going. It's constant. Malachi. It's rapping like a guy. Not a girl. I don't know why a girl couldn't rap, but I'm a guy who wants to hurl at people with more than two legs or less than two legs. Really puts me in the dregs. Like your host who's running out of breath. I'll keep going till he's got a suffocation death. Gonna tear himself apart like... Oh, say low. You see him up in heaven, got a halo. You see him down in hell with the flames. You see me up here spitting rhymes. That's like rhymes, but a slant. That's like grimes. Your man. Is it over yet? Stop it. It's done. Later. See ya. Bye.
look around. The grass is high, the fields are ripe. It's the springtime of my life. Look around. 